If you've been with us for the last number of uh, months even, uh, certainly weeks, months, we've been in the book of 2 Peter. And the big idea, Pastor Paul reminded us last week of 2 Peter, is simply this. The big idea in the whole book is that uh, we need to believe and we need to live in light of Christ's return, which will be in his full power and his full glory. That's what this, the book of 2 Peter is all about. And what we see here is uh, quite a lengthy, t- the whole second chapter has been committed to teaching on false teaching. In fact, it, it's, a, it's a serious issue. Most of the New Testament, in fact, all of the epistles in the New Testament, with, a, with the exception of maybe only Philemon, have an explicit command against false teachers, explicit warnings for Christians against false teaching. This is a very real uh, issue, certainly in the first century, for Christians, for the early church, and it is real for us today. The, the way you see Second Peter's letter unfold is the first chapter is, uh, is, is commandment, is biblical instructions to live in light of what's happened. Live in light of your, of your salvation. The second chapter I've called our message this morning, watch out. That's what chapter 2 is all about. Watch out for false teachers. And chapter 3 looks at the, the future return of Christ, which is promised to us. And Peter will tell us that it is near and it is sure. The reason why I think false teaching is so often written about is because it, it matters, it's important. And the New Testament writers, the, the writers of the epistles, Paul, who is one of the foremost of them, would say, watch out, lest you be enticed by these false doctrines. Or worse yet, be numbered among the false teachers yourself. Don't be deceived, don't be fooled. In Peter's first letter to, the, to these Christians in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, he's writing to the elders and that Greek word elders is the same uh, for overseers or shepherds is the image that he uses. And I want to read it with you. His command for shepherds, for pastors, for elders, for leaders in the church is this in verse 2 and 3. To shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Now, a moment ago, we read our passage this morning, 2 Peter 2, verses 10 to the end. That passage is everything that what I just read isn't. It's everything contrary, false teachers are, to what our call is as shepherds, as leaders in the church. False teachers are the exact opposite. Whereas a shepherd's job and role is to serve and love and, t- and tend and care and protect the flock, false teachers' goal, their primary objective is to destroy the flock, is to lead them astray. So watch out, is what Peter says. I want to explore this text this morning under two main categories. If you have notes or you're following along, uh, you'll see that the first one, we'll look at false teachers. We'll see that they look legit, and we'll see that they victimize the vulnerable. And we'll conclude looking at at an exhortation to carry on. We'll see more of what that means. Here's what I mean by false teachers looking legit, is that they're people. They're real people. I uh, always had this idea that false teachers were about this big and they were red and they were cartoon and they had horns and a little spiky tail. But that isn't the image that we receive here in the Bible, is it? False teachers aren't these little cartoon devils like they are on TV. False teachers could be your brothers and sisters. They may call themselves Christians. You may have them over for dinner. In fact, it says here that they revel, they scheme, and they connive while they're feasting with you. Peter starts off his letter Uh, Chapter 2, pardon me, the the beginning of the chapter, he says that uh, false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They are among you. 
That's where they will come from. Uh, my wife and I like to watch crime movies. I'm not a big movie buff, but I like a good crime movie. And one thing I've learned from the movies, okay, is that crimes can take place from within. A bank or a casino is, they're at, they're at threat from outside attacks, sure. But the most successful and the best stories are made by the ones that are inside jobs. Where, where an employee or a leader or a manager or an owner gets corrupt. Or maybe they've been corrupt all along. And they get their following and they're a ringleader and they conduct a big heist and they make away with large sums of money. Those make the best stories. Crimes from within. And I think the church is no different. The church sure has threats from outside, from the outside world. Absolutely. Make no mistake. But the church is not impervious to attacks and threats from within. From within its own walls. From within its own community of believers. Hence why Peter can say they are among you. But here's what we know. Two things. The first is that they've gone astray. And the second, which we'll look at in a moment, is that they are waterless springs. Verse 15 would give us some indication that false teachers didn't start off as false teachers. It says that they've forsaken the right way and gone astray. In other words, they've had some exposure or some experience to the gospel. There's been some kind of acceptance, acknowledgement, some kind of change that started. But they've gone astray. They've escaped the corruption of the world for a short time, but it didn't last. Like a match that you light and then is snuffed out in a few seconds. It didn't last. It never came to completion, this finding the right way. This is precisely what Jesus is getting at in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. He's talking with his disciples, and he tells a parable, as he often does, and the parable is of a sower, of a farmer who's just throwing seed out of a bag on different types of soil. And there's four types of soil and would that we had more time, we could, we, could, we could study that passage as well. But there's four types of soil. And what we see is that in three of the four cases, the, the, the seed grows and dies. It's either snatched by the birds or it's scorched by the sun or it's choked out. And only one type of soil is one that produces a crop. At least what Second Peter is talking about here is, is the seed that's grown for a while, but it was sown among the thorns and the thistles and the weeds. And as it's grown up, it's been choked out by the pressures of the world. So where did false teachers go wrong? Well, verse 20 would say that they have been entangled and overcome by the defilements of the world. We all live in an entangling and defiling world, but false teachers are those who have escaped it for a while, but who have become entangled in it. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 uses this image of a self, that you have a, an old self, think of it like a coat maybe, you take off your old self and you put it away, and you put on your new self. And that's the Christian discipline is regular and daily, putting on this new self. But false teachers, because they've been entangled by the defilements and the, the temptations and the lures of the world, they've decided, you know what, I like my old self. I like my old coat. In fact, I'm going to take off my new one and put my old one right back on. They have not put their earthly passions to death, as the New Testament would command us to do. They prefer their old selves. And so here's what we have in First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1 tells us that Christians, those who have experienced the gospel and seen God's goodness, they've received everything by God's divine power, the promises for everything they need for a life of godliness, right at the beginning of our book that we're studying. That God's given you everything you need if you're a follower of Jesus, everything you need to withstand this evil and adulterous world that we live in, you've been given, you have received. He says this, um, that... Uh, You've, given, you've been given what you need to escape the power of the world's corruption that comes from sinful desire. We all have a sinful desire. The difference is that Christians can repent of that. 
we have hope outside of that. We're not a victim to our own sinful desires at the end of time. God and Jesus has, been give, has given us everything we need. Now, if it were easy, there would be no people who fall, who fall away. There would be no people who become apostate. apostate is, apostasy is a word that, that means someone's come to faith and they've fallen away. And these days it seems like more and more people, more and more prolific pastors and, and uh, people who, who write books and who lead large churches are falling away from the faith. They've gone apostate. So if it were easy, we wouldn't have that. Obviously, it is not easy to stay the course of faith. So false teachers are those who haven't persevered and they've wandered astray at some point along the way. So the first is that they've gone astray. Verse 17, the Apostle Peter uses a few images of of a waterless spring and a mist driven by the storm. Let's talk about that for a moment. They're waterless springs. I've never uh, wandered in a desert or uh, on by accident anyway, <laughs> uh, I've never gone through a desert to the point where I'm about to, to die or, or I, I've starved or uh, been, been lacking water, being dehydrated. But from what I understand, if that gets to you, if that's, that's what's happening, you're in the desert, you can begin to be deceived by things called mirages. You could see a big pond of water or a fresh spring. And in your mind, you begin to follow after that. And when you get there, you realize it was just a reflection. It was just the way the light and the heat were doing things. And you've been deceived. So you arrive to what you thought was a life-giving spring that will save you and quench you, but in reality, it's empty. There is nothing there for you. This is how the Apostle Peter describes false teachers. They're waterless springs with nothing to offer because they have nothing to give. There's nothing there but emptiness. A waterless spring, I think, is a reference to Jesus' conversation with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where there's a woman who's come to the well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, Uh, because it's not a popular time and she's there and she's kind of showing up in her shame and Jesus asks for for a a cup of water and she says you shouldn't be asking me I shouldn't be able to serve you and she says she says you don't have a bucket and there's this fascinating interaction and at the end of it Jesus says he says to her look everyone who drinks of this water the water from the well will be thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again he's not talking about physical water The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Listen, if you're a a child of God, in your heart you have a fountain, a spring of living water that leads to eternal life. For others, false teachers is not so. They're waterless springs. It's like a mirage. They they seem good. They have the appearance of of life they have the appearance they're they're fitting in they're wearing the right clothes to church they're saying the right things they're quoting the scriptures all seems good they fit in but inside they're waterless springs i think false teachers know the bible maybe that's why they be that's why they're so dangerous satan knows the bible too you know in fact when jesus was being tempted in the desert he it says that he was tempted by the by the enemy for 40 days at the end of it he was hungry and he was tired And through that time, the enemy tempted Jesus multiple times by quoting scripture. He said, oh, Jesus, you're hungry, are you? There's some rocks there. If you're you're Jesus, I mean, after all, turn him into bread. Why don't you? Or he offers him the world, and he says, just jump off the temple. Just jump off, and I'll give you everything. Satan, of course, can't even do that. He doesn't even have that authority. But he twists the scriptures to try and deceive. False teachers are the same way. They speak of things they don't understand. They've twisted the scriptures to fit their own desires, their own agenda. So not only are they empty, the springs are empty and waterless, but they're actually a trap. It's a snare put out by the devil whose goal is to take you hostage to sin. 
Now, it seems fitting to clarify something, okay? Not everybody who you disagree with on matters of the scripture is a false teacher. You may not be right on every single doctrine. And just take a moment where we linger in the foyer afterwards. Begin to talk theology with people, or maybe don't, but you'll quickly discover that not everybody has the same theology on all of the same things. And so false teachers aren't born out of every single theological disagreement. I need to clarify that. Lest you leave here on a witch hunt looking for false teachers. Thinking that if you didn't get the vaccine and they did, well, they're a false teacher or they're a heretic. Okay, within the Christian realm, there are doctrines that we call open-handed doctrines. And they're things that the Bible says a certain amount of things about, a sufficient amount about, and the rest we need to wrestle with. And you may find that even you and your spouse may disagree on some things, or you and your closest friend may disagree on some open-handed theological issues. And if you can wrestle with those in healthy ways, and your conversations are, are, are met with grace and with kindness, that's a good thing. Those aren't the kind of false teachers. If you're willing to open the scriptures and seeking to understand, that's a good place to start. So I'm not talking about those kind of disagreements. What I'm talking about is false teachers whose agenda isn't to understand the scripture and learn. Their intention is to twist it and to, and to be divisive and to cause dissension and start a new church who is going to do all sorts of things that the Bible explicitly says are wrong. They're everything opposite a shepherd. And they'll sand down the, the sharp edges of the gospel that maybe seem a little offensive. People don't like that. So we'll just, we'll just sand that off. It's a little more palatable, isn't it? These are the kind of doctrines that cut theological corners that you need to be worried about. So go for lunch. Talk theology. Just do so with kindness and grace and charity for one another, seeking to understand. So false teachers look legit. They're waterless springs. The second point this morning is that they victimize the vulnerable. Imagine, this, this sadly enough in our world, is, is true. These are true stories. But imagine for a moment in your mind, maybe you have somebody who comes to mind, a young boy who either was lost his father before he was born or maybe lost his father at a young age, but he grew up fatherless. And as this boy who's maybe eight or ten grows up in the world, he's going to need older men who he trusts, who are safe, who can teach him what it looks like to provide for your family, what it looks like to have a good work ethic, what it looks like to serve people, what it looks like to be tough, to walk it off. He needs someone who can teach him what it looks like to grow and to be a man when his father's not there to do that. There will be surrogate fathers in his life, maybe a grandfather, maybe an uncle, Maybe the, the father of a friend who he trusts, who can take him under his wing and grow. So the real beautiful thing about this is that this young boy will be naive. And he'll be innocent. And in his naivety, he'll do whatever he's told. He'll believe whatever is told him. This is a wonderful thing. But unfortunately, in the world we live in, not everybody is trustworthy, are they? That's a perfect opportunity for some creep to come along. Or for some criminal leader to come along and, and prey upon a vulnerable young man. The same is true within the Christian faith. There are people who have just come to faith, just come to saving faith. They only, only understand just a little bit about the gospel and about God's love for them. And they're vulnerable. They don't, they don't know better. They don't know all the right answers. They haven't studied the scriptures because it's so new. And praise God that those people have escaped their fate as sinners. But these people are vulnerable. They're spiritually vulnerable. They're spiritually immature. In verse 18 and 19, Peter warns us that speaking, false teachers, La, uh, speaking loud boasts of folly, false teachers will entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They've just escaped this lifestyle, the sinful lifestyle, their wickedness, and now they're being told, that's ah, actually fine. It's okay. 
Those are the ones who are vulnerable. Whereas Peter's agenda, all along, it tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, he's telling you, he's encouraging you, he's imploring you to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And he goes on and gives some instructions. But it's not so with the vulnerable. They haven't got there yet. But false teachers will lead them astray. By their promiscuous living and their compelling teaching, they'll entice those who are unsteady, who have barely themselves escaped their corruption. They victimize the vulnerable. They do that in a couple of ways. The first way, I think, is that they offer false freedom. I have a relative who's a cattle farmer in southern Alberta, and I, and I, I like to think that some of the best beef in, in Alberta comes from his ranch in southern Alberta. And his farm is massive. If he wants to go check on his cattle, he doesn't get on a horse or an ATV. He gets in his plane and he flies over his ranch. It is huge. It's 25 miles this way by 25 miles that way. This is the ranch that he runs. And so these cattle surely have some freedom, would you say? I would think so too. But in their best interest, there are boundaries to that freedom, which is the ranch. His property has, has, is delineated by a fence. But outside that fence are, are dangers. There's other farms. There's wildlife. There's all sorts of other things. They could starve. They could wander away and just be lost. But true freedom isn't unlimited. I think our world tells us that freedom is unlimited. You, you do what you want. That's where freedom is. You can live whatever life you want. But that's not true. True freedom is not unlimited. True freedom lies within predetermined boundaries or a fence, if you will. If the cattle ranch image helps you is predetermined boundaries to your freedom, which are actually in your best interest. False teachers in verse 19 will promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So they'll come to you with their silky used car salesman-like approach and their tactics and entice you to live outside of those boundaries which God has put in place for your flourishing in his glory. Do you know that the scriptures have something to say about your marriage? There's boundaries to your marriage if you're married. If you're single, the Bible has parameters around your singleness. If you have any money to your name, the Bible has parameters around how you spend your money, how you spend your time, based on God's glory and your flourishing. False teachers, however, will call you to live outside that. They will entice you and lure you outside of that, which is exactly what the serpent does in Genesis 3. He calls into question God's instruction. God gave Adam and Eve tons of freedom. He just said, there's one tree that it's, it's not going to go well for you if you eat that tree. And the sneaky serpent slithers along and says, did God really say, to, he says to Eve, he says, did God really say not to eat any of the fruit? Which isn't, by the way, what God actually said. But he calls into question those boundaries. And they're deceived and they eat and their eyes were opened and the rest is history and here we are today. False freedom is the world on Instagram that says, man, you do what you want, you do you. But that's not freedom at all. Because as we're told here, whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. If you're overcome by sin, if you, you desire sin outside of what God has permitted as good, you're a slave to sin, which is exactly what we're trying to get away from. But you're a slave to it if you wander outside of that deliberately. I'm not saying you're never going to make mistakes. But if your intentions are to live outside of God's boundaries, you need to watch out. So Christian freedom is within God's sovereign boundaries around morality. It's a result of the fall. 
And as Christians, our continual life, every single day, is that putting on of the new self, taking off of the old self, dying to the flesh, submitting to those desires to live outside the fence. Because it looks good. The grass sure looks greener over there. And I know I have 25 miles this way and 25 miles that way, but would that there were 26 miles. But our life as Christians is to, to submit to God and to grow in righteousness. But false teachers' intentions are to lead you to false freedom. The second thing is that false teachers go from bad to worse. <laughs> Look at verse 20 with me. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. They were better off before. Why? Well, here's why. <laughs> before you were a Christian, if you're a Christian, before you were a Christian, you were a helpless sinner. I was too. With no hope of your own of, of, of life or of escaping the penalty for your sin. Same is true for all sinners. But you have an opportunity to respond should it present itself to you by God's grace. To respond to the gospel. So that's a bad state to be in apart from God. But you have the option, the opportunity to say yes when it comes to you. Okay? You can jump at the opportunity for salvation and to repent. But look at verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So the reason the second state for false teachers is worse than the first is because they had that chance of saving faith. And they jumped on it and they said, yeah. They jumped into the life raft while the, the vessel was sinking. But then they jumped right back out into their old way of living. They've tasted, they've seen, they've heard the goodness of God's love, his grace, and his mercy, and they've rejected it. So it's worse for them, having had the opportunity, and maybe even having repented for a time, to then turn back. False teachers have abandoned the gospel with an uppercase G. They've betrayed the gospel and embraced a counterfeit one, a lowercase g, gospel, for something less. It's sad. But it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse because not only have they done this for themselves, but they take others along with them and lead others to destruction, particularly vulnerable ones. This is why Jesus condemns the Pharisees. The Pharisees were notorious for being religious, doing all the right things, keeping the law perfectly, blameless. And Jesus condemns them and he says, listen, when you go to make new converts, make new Pharisees, you make them so religious and so righteous that you turn them into twice the sons of hell as you are. And they're better off than before. Here's what he says, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one through whom sin comes. It would have been better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause any one of these ones, these little ones, to sin. They go from bad to worse. Don't mess with vulnerable ones. Don't mess with God's children. So what now? What do we do? How do we protect ourselves from false teachers? How do we make sure that we're not a victim of their sneaky attacks well our second point is to carry on watch out but carry on here's what i mean is that false teachers are not unrestrained they're on a leash they're on a sovereign leash and it might seem like it's out of control but they're not 
The Apostle Peter makes a reference to Numbers chapter 22, verse 20, or Numbers chapter 22 and 24, to a guy named Balaam. And Balaam was a prophet, or, or a so-called prophet, who had, he was a seer. He had the ability to, to see into the future and, 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 and connect with the spiritual world and give curses or blessings accordingly to what he saw. And so the king of Moab named Balak says, man, we're in trouble. The nation of Israel is coming in. And he's like, look out, this is bad. I'm going to call Balaam, and Balaam's going to curse the nation of Israel because they're going to come in and they're going to wipe us out. So he calls over Balaam, and Balaam says, I can't do it. And he says, please do it. And they go back and forth, and it's a few chapters long. Go home and read it for yourself. But it's a few chapters long, and by the end, Balaam is enticed by the gain. Balak offers him anything. He says, my house is full of gold, and so whatever you want, it's all yours. Just do this for me. And so Balaam finds a way to compromise. He says, I want to be faithful to what God has to say, but I also like the money. And so he's on his way to go meet with this guy named Balak, and he's on a donkey, and God says, well, Balaam's kind of blown it here. So God puts words in the mouth of a donkey and stops him in his tracks. The donkey is more faithful to God than Balaam is. And what happens is Balaam gives multiple blessings. He says, I'm only going to say what God permits me to say, what God tells me to say. And he repeatedly blesses the nation of Israel. So God is sovereign over false teachers. Even though they're scheming and they're destructive, God is sovereign over them. He has them on a leash. And there will come a day, which is what we get to in chapter 3, where they will meet the punishment due them for their sin. Their wages for wickedness is how the scriptures would put it. It says in verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. You see, God's in control. So you need to watch out We need to carry on. He says they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They're not going to get away with it. Their wickedness is not unrestrained. Praise God. In the meantime, you and I, brothers and sisters, need to carry on by growing in grace. Or to borrow the language from Jesus' parable to his disciples in Matthew, we need to, to grow grain. And here's what I mean. In verse 23 of Matthew 13, he says, As for what was sown on the good soil, remember there was only one seed that actually took and anything good came of. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So there's actually evidence. That one of the ways you can tell who false teachers are and who they aren't is look at their life. Are they bearing fruit? Are they bearing grain? Is there any fruit from their faith? Remember, earlier in our book, in chapter 1, Peter talks about these qualities, and he says, do everything, make your best effort to supplement things with uh, your faith, with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, with brotherly affection, and with love. Do those because you've received salvation. Don't do those things to earn it, but show it. Grow some grain of your faith hold fast to the scriptures hasten the day where god's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven be ones who produce grain for if these qualities are yours peter says and increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful increase in maturity brothers and sisters study the word do the word store it away tuck it in your mind in your heart that you wouldn't be vulnerable that you'd be strong against false teaching the destructive false teachings that are in our world lest you be led astray or worse yet be numbered among them peter ends his chapter towards the end 
ends his book, rather, his letter in chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let me pray. Father, what a sobering reminder to know that we are vulnerable. To know that the enemy prowls around seeking those to devour, looking for his next meal. Father, may we not be found in those ranks. May we flee from the enemy. May we seek you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your children to understand your word and to to do it. That we would be faithful, that we would be knowledgeable, that we would have an understanding and a wisdom to be able to stand up against false teaching. God, that we would be so familiar with what is true that what is false would just simply be blown away. Help us, Lord, grow in these ways, I pray. Amen.